Attention, please. Attention, please. This podcast is about to be activated. Please stand clear of all podcasts. Motion is about to occur. Thank you. And now, let's take a ride on Animusings. Is that the people? Yes, it is. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm like, it's Tomorrowland, and then it just kind of clicked. Oh, it's People Mover. Yeah, it's People Mover. I was trying to think of another way to open this with ride audio that I actually know, and that was the first thing that came to my mind. Yes, I am a nerd like that. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Animusings. This is our third episode. Uh, I am your host, David King. And I am also your host, Kayla Berry. And uh, tonight we have another special guest with us. Uh, he is from the Raygun Readers podcast and is a avid uh, musical genius, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> say, say hello to Abysme. Hello, hello, everyone. And uh, musical genius is very far off base. <laughs> well, I mean, it takes one to know one. Said, <laughs> said the, the musical savant in the room who actually doesn't know how to play anything. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that because you can just play things by ear. Yeah. And I I cannot play, like, I, I, don't re- I don't do songs other people have written. I don't, like, just memorize it. I should. But I can't just pick up a guitar and be like, hey, play Wonderwall. I can't do it. Like, I, just, <laughs> I only know how to write my, and play my stuff. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, I have seen him... Uh, play a piano and um he's playing like the gravity falls theme song i'm like oh wow you play that really low how long, how how long have you been practicing this he's like oh i just thought this up now i'm like what? <laughs> uh you know it, the effort is uh it just it just depends on the the complexity of the song sometimes um i don't know anyway we're off to a weird start why are we talking about music Kayla, why are we talking about music? Well, the third movie uh, that the Walt Disney Animated Studios produced is Fantasia. Fantasia. Which came out November 13th in 1940. 19, oh, wow. So the same year as Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Fantasia. Uh, this is one that I hadn't actually seen in a really long time, but as a kid, I loved this one. The last time I saw this, and not even all the way through, was in college mm-hmm. uh, when I was 19. Um, we were all up late and just chatting and joking, and then someone had that bright idea at like, it was like one o'clock in the morning or something, they're like, let's watch Fantasia. I'm like, why? Why would you watch Fantasia at one o'clock in the morning? And of course, <laughs> we didn't get all the way through because Fantasia's not exactly a middle of the night type of movie to no. watch. No, it's that not. That is so weird that you say that because the last time I saw Fantasia before this was in college in my second year at like two in the morning. Oh, really? Because we oh. were we were just like partying and then it wound down and we're like, well, no one wants to go to bed yet. So who's got stuff on their laptop? And someone just brought up Fantasia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are sec. What's interesting is watching this uh, this Fantasia again. I realized that the one I saw as a kid was a little bit shorter because they actually cut down a bunch of the middle portions where there is the uh, um, the gentleman. We'll get we'll get to him, but there's some live action segments where there's a a, a man introducing, and I've, his name completely escapes me all of a sudden. But he's introducing the different segments, and those Deems were cut. Teams Taylor. Teams Taylor. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
he's introducing the segments. Yeah, I, I knew it. his name was escaping me. <laughs> but he's he's introducing the segments, and he goes on for a long time. But in the VHS version I had as a kid, those were cut way, way down, and he wasn't. you didn't get, like, the whole uh, explanation of things given to you. So, um that um that in itself was kind of interesting it made it made the whole thing feel longer and maybe a little drier mhm but um that's the reason for me like i'm watching it like yeah i don't know if i could handle this super late at night if it, if it, unless i was watching the version i grew up with where so. it was much shorter it was a li- it was a teeny bit shorter they didn't shorten any of the animated segments they just shortened the, some of the in between segments um so funny enough this was um disney's one of like first Box office flop, and it actually was considered one of the biggest opening box office flops. Really? Um, well, I mean, for one, it was, I, I want to say, after watching it, probably one of Walt Disney's most unique uh, animation challenges or animated films. Like, I, this is one of the few that's not story-driven. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean couple pieces are but it's just like it's definitely uh delves into an experimentation again we'll we'll get more into it i'm just kind of spatting out probably reasons why because and i don't think for that audience they're like what is this crap we want an actual good (laughs) it's high art come on you guys where's snow white (laughs) i want Um, snow white too um I, I, I don't understand that, because again, as a kid, and even now, I, I, I'll say it right now, I love this movie. I think this, I think Fantasia is phenomenal. Well, here's, so did many other people, because um, it was re-released many different times, and as a result, actually became a hit in its own right. Um, by 2012, it had grossed $76.4 million in domestic U.S. revenue alone. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. And that's not adjusting for inflation. No. No. Yeah, that's huh. so immense, immense amounts of money. I have a theory as to why it was a flop, um, just looking into a little bit of the history of it. Um, I think it's more well-received today because for a lot of people, Fantasia is the first kind of anthology introduction to not just abstract uh, animation and opera and stuff like that, but just classical music in general. A lot mm-hmm. of the scores you hear in this are famous but you know when you're five or seven or whatever like you don't really listen to the you know classical radio so this is your first introduction back in the day classical music was like that was one of the main things people listened to and there was actually a lot of classical music composers and critics who did not like fantasia because they felt it was a bastardization and it was somehow dumbing it down because the scores were not complete so i think it's just a a time and place and generation thing because i know for me like when i first saw this i had no idea what i was looking at it absolutely blew my mind of just this meeting of weird animation and shapes and sounds and it was just like it was definitely one of the biggest influences on me as a musician because i just it, it had an emotional impact on me and i wanted more of that i wanted to be a part of that but yeah i think it's different back in 1940 when everyone just knows classical music well you're not the only one um so a couple, again, I'll be giving fun facts throughout this uh, podcast. Uh, first off, this is Steven Spielberg's favorite animated film of all time. And it, in June t- 2008, it was ranked number five on the American Film Institute's list of top ten greatest films in animation. Mm. Um, 
So, uh, again, I think the best way to go through this is probably by each section. Well, I, I kind of figured that was the way we would do it because it is broken <laughs> down into segments. But, um, yeah, um, I mean, we can talk. I mean, we're. You, we're going to talk about the film as a whole, of course, but of course. but it is essentially an anthology piece of different seg- segments, and uh, it even has a fifteen. Even in its original theatrical release, it had a fifteen minute intermission, like you were at a proper concert. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to have to put this, on, you know, look at this differently than we would in, in any other uh, Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I really think the best way to do it is to just jump right into it. So. Yeah, honestly. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I but one of the reasons I will say I'm glad to have uh, you in on this one, Abysme, is because uh, I I think you had expressed to us how much of an influence this had on you. And uh, and um, I figured, hey, who better to have on this than an actual trained musician? So mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Hmm. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, of course. And so without further ado, uh, let's get this people mover rolling. Um I'm not sure the people mover. I'm not sure if the people mover is the appropriate um, analog for uh, <laughs> for Fantasia, but it was what I could think of in the moment. So anyway, um, so we open up with the concert hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's uh, setting up. You actually watch them all set up. Um, uh, the um, conductor who's leading these um, musicians is Leopold Stokowski. And actually, um, later on, later on, one of uh, his original pieces of music is played, but we'll get into that later. Oh, okay. But yeah, Leopold Sukowski is our main guy mm-hmm. through this. I always like the way this started because you basically initially what initially starts out is you have a bunch of um, the musicians, the uh, the orchestra is entering, and you just kind of see their shadows projected huge on the wall behind them as they move in. There's all these lights that come on as they're sort of warming up their instruments. And I think it's a great way to kind of just uh, set the mood for Fantasia. I'm not sure. I still I remember it very vividly as a kid, like kind of just like the ab- that part was abstract enough on its own without it even going into the first animated segment. Just this these shadows of these uh, of this orchestra coming together and playing bits of music that you'll hear later on. But just as they're warming up. It's a very interesting, um, and I think it's very deliberate, actually, how they open this, because with with that section, they are showing us every section of the orchestra, and they are evoking different moods by which instruments are adjoining to what color. Mm-hmm. And then when Deems Taylor, the Master of Ceremonies, comes in, he starts, and this is why it's kind of nice to see the extended version, he gives you a lot of background and interpretation. And typically, that's not a good thing because you don't want to be told how to feel about something. Mm-hmm. But when you are penetrating something like classical music, and especially something that people may not be familiar with, kind of like with Shakespeare, you need to be told what's happening and you need to be given a context so you can more, I guess, ease yourself into the experience. And the opening, uh, Toccata and Fugue in D minor, of course, is so weird and abstract anyway that you can draw whatever conclusion you want. But it, it really does help, especially, again, children, to kind of be introduced to what's happening. Because, uh, as Kayla said, this is such a weird, unique piece. Mm-hmm. Nothing like this, other than Fantasia 2000, um, I don't think has ever really been done. It's <laughs> just such a strange idea. So I think this opening is incredibly fitting and incredibly necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, uh, just to reiterate, um, it is Toccata in Fugue uh, in D minor, and that's by Johann Sebastian Bach. Good old yes. Bach. Uh, and uh, I, I was able to actually find a fun fact for each musical piece. Um, with this one, because it de- deals with the idea of colors and um, uh, having colors interact with um, the music, uh, fun fact, during the production, the animators were given no instructions for coloring. Uh, Walt Disney <laughs> said, use any colors they wanted. Hmm. Didn't matter. It was the first t- to ever happen like that. I um I always thought I thought that was I always thought that was very cool like um that aspect of it that Walt was just like yeah have fun use your imaginations here and just do what you want <laughs> um well, I, I especially I imagine that's especially the, that was probably the the consensus was that the consensus given for every piece or specifically the A- every piece the, the abstract piece with the Takata and Fugue every single piece okay so I I'm just saying that for this one because I think this is definitely to set the tone, it, um, there was a phrase I once heard. It's called painting music, where you would listen to music and just paint whatever comes into your mind. And right. this is what it feels like. Right. They just said, okay, what colors do I think of when I hear this music? There is a condition called synesthesia, yes. where a lot of people pair colors to uh, music, to notes. This movie... Must be a nightmare for someone with synesthesia. Because <laughs> oh, no. if you just look, oh, the high strings are a, a light yellow, and someone's in the back going, no, no, you're wrong. What are you doing? Stop. <laughs> oh, I can imagine this would be a trip for someone who's like on shrooms or some sort of drug. Oh, especially the opening. Yeah. Like it's just weird, random shit happening the entire time. Oh, no doubt. Um, and you know, it's interesting that we start with this, and he. And first, uh, you know, uh, Deems Taylor kind of introduces what the three kinds of uh, animation we're going to be getting. And we open Mm -hmm. with abstract. There's uh, less abstract, but with more of a definite story. And then there's the kind that tells a really definite story. And it kind of fluctuates throughout the throughout the film, throughout the the feature. Uh, I believe the test name originally for Fantasia was just the concert feature. (laughs) <laughs> Wasn't that the case? It, there was Walt called it initially just the concert feature before I, it became Fantasia. Yeah, I believe you if you do say that. <laughs> I, I just looked up facts through each one, so that's all good. Um, but yeah, um, so this is how we are, are brought into it. Was just this idea of, and he, this is one of the ones where I think he does a good job setting it up because he's setting the tone for what we're going to expect. And this is again, this one is just abstract. It's just shapes and colors and movement and. Uh, shadow and light and flourishes. That's basically the best way I can describe the number, uh, the the animation part of the Takata and Fugue. But and again, very ballsy to start mm-hmm. out with the high art, abstract conceptual stuff, and then eventually go into the more recognizable, less surreal, story driven pieces. Yes. But it works. This is such a weird movie. <laughs> and I don't think a lot of people understand that, especially in the context of a Disney production. I think more people appreciate. Well, like has been established, more people appreciate it now than they did mm-hmm. uh, in in the forties, at least, because it, it, you know, it was a gamble doing something like this. This was new; no one had ever explored this concept before in the same way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think they almost ease you into that too, because it starts out not with the animation, but just with shots of the orchestra playing. But they're 
given that thing where you see the colors, you see their shadows spread out on the walls, some of their instruments glow when they play them a certain color. And I I think that's great. So like the first part of the Takata and Fugue is just the orchestra. And then it mm-hmm. transforms into the animation where uh where it shows like instruments in this colorful abstract. Yes. And then the skill with that animation. Mm-hmm. It, again, like uh, Abysmi said, very ballsy to start that <laughs> way. But then it makes sense because it's simple enough and kind of does set that tone. Do you have any, uh, do, do either of you have any fa- favorite moments from this, even though it's abstract, just any specific shapes or scenes in this collage that jump out to you? Well, um, you mentioned the opening where we're just seeing, <clears throat> we were just seeing the orchestra which is arguably probably the most powerful and driving of the movement. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, again, this was very much a educational experience when I first saw this, because a lot of music and how uh, we develop a taste in music is not so not only how it's constructed, but how we experience it. Because you can like, you know, maybe one type of music, but if you're at a party and someone's karaokeing a ridiculous song <laughs> and it's just funny to you, you may like that, even though you don't listen to, I don't know, country or something. Mm. Um, and if you had just, if you, you know, if you sit a bunch of kids down and you just play Takata and Fugue, you don't know how they may react to it. They may not care. It may make them cry. But when you have a visual accompaniment, and especially, you know, for the harsh parts, you see the um, the contrabass, and it's like this, I think it's a dark red or something, and it's just that enormous bow, and it's striking and striking. Like, that's such a amazing way to convey a sound and a oh, timbre yeah. of an instrument. So just that opening, which is already, like, on its own, that piece is so powerful, the way it swells, and how just technical and precise the musicianship is. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, it, again, when I, <laughs> I was crying at the beginning of this film and at the end of it, <laughs> because it's just that, like, I don't know, man, it st- strikes such an emotional chord with me. It's really and moving. It, it is. It absolutely it's, is. It's genuinely, it's genuinely moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, one of the things that's really, that really strikes me, too, is, like, this is my first exposure to the Takata and Fugue. Like, before it became synonymous with a lot of horror movies and old haunted house things in my mind. Yeah. Uh, it was to me, I'd hear it and I'd immediately think of Fantasia. That was the first thing I would think of as, as a kid. Uh, it wasn't until later that I realized that Takata had been written. The, the piece had originally been written for pipe organ, like specifically yeah. for pipe organ. And then here it is translated into a full orchestra. And like looking back on it now, I can appreciate how much effort goes into turning a piece that was originally written for just one instrument into an entire orchestra. See, this is why uh, I'm excited for the next part because um, uh, that we're going to talk about because I have the same idea. Like, I like the fact that it goes against what the music was originally intended for. Uh, But if you guys are... Well, I I don't know if there's much... The thing is, unlike other beats of this movie, there's not a ton we can say about the specifics of the animation. Just that the animation is great. Um, it matches the music really well. Uh, you, the colors and the, uh, the, the movements that are, you know, vague as they are match the, uh, match the tone of the piece. And it's really interesting because like you can make that correlation between art and music in your head. And I know music Mm -hmm. is interpreted however you want, but you know, when it, when it's, when we get into the minor keys, when we get into the, like the darker, lower tones, the colors get richer into like 
blacks and reds and purples and blues. And then when the when there's something triumphant, when the music swells and gets higher, the t- colors tend to be brighter or uh, yellows, greens, uh, bright reds, oranges. Uh, there's sparkles mm-hmm. and fogs that appear. I, 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 that was my imp- impression that I got from it, though. Would you say that's fairly accurate, Abismi? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When things are low and it just... It's it's very easy to assign the color spectrum to the tonal spectrum because low things, uh, as humans, we actually don't hear the lower register as much as other animals do. We typically hear higher, I think between like a uh, like five hundred thousand kilohertz or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to that is Paprika's phone. Um, <laughs> it makes um it makes sense how they ascribe lighter and of whatever color you want to the brighter and just the more um, voluminous pieces. So you're absolutely right on all of that. Hmm. Well, uh, good to know. I'm not just spitting in the wind. Uh, <laughs> um, so the uh, next piece is uh, the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, but. Okay, um, so, no, I, um, I, I mean, it was also mentioned in the movie, but Tchaikovsky hates this. This is his least favorite piece that he ever (laughs) wrote, and I, I don't blame him. I once worked for a, um, a theater when I was in high school, like, in, like, a play theater, like, I, I, I assured for it. So during those times, I would go in and uh, watch some of the shows for free, and I had to usher the Nutcracker five times, and I could not watch it anymore. It got, I kind of got sick of it, but I love the music. The music is, (laughs) I think the music's gorgeous. So the reason why I like um, this one, which I think we we should separate into little bits uh we will we will we'll go in order yeah uh eventually but um the reason why i like this is because it's they actually don't use any like nutcracker tropes or like use use like oh well um we're gonna involve like um i don't i don't know it's like i mean yes there's like a there's fairies. Yes, there is fairies during the fairy dance, uh, like the sugar plum fairy, or with the Chinese dance, um, the mushrooms do look like um, Chinese people <laughs> and stuff like that. But it, it doesn't make me think. Yeah, I'm totally watching the Nutcracker. I'm not thinking that. I think during yeah. this segment, I was. Uh, you mentioned that, and there was something that was sitting in the back of my mind. I leaned over to you as we were watching and said. It's time to play everyone's favorite game. Is this racist? <laughs> Is this PC? <laughs> so I totally pointed that out to Paprika, who was watching this with me. She said, no, you're crazy. That's just how mushrooms look. Yeah, but it's the Chinese dance. Like, this is clearly referencing uh, Chinese garb and traditions. Is it racist? No, no, but, like, hello, Chinese. It's <laughs> it's a caricature. I mean, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think... I. This is me talking as a white person who doesn't know. It didn't strike. It doesn't strike me that way. But again, I don't know. Well, well there's six different um, uh, songs that are used for this portion, and three of them have to do with a certain country. Uh, that mm-hmm. one's the Chinese dance. Uh, another is the Russian, and another is the Arabian dance. 
So when we open up this one, and this is again, uh, it's not abstract. We're actually getting stuff going on, but it it's not, and it's not, it's not necessarily telling a definite story. That's just got an interconnecting theme, you know? Yeah. We're kind of moving through seasons, so it kind of starts with, uh, uh, I want to say like a spring sort of thing. It's like yeah. night. Some fairies come out. They flit around and put the, dew on things. And the if we begin with Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Mm-hmm. Right, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. You know what's weird is my, my two favorite pieces from the original Nutcracker are uh, not in this. I really? tend to like all the music from Act 1 of the Nutcracker. <laughs> oh. Like the Overture, the uh, the March, the, uh, the um, I don't know, the pieces where it's like, the, the the mouse army versus the army of toys you know that that those those musical pieces tend to be my favorites um it's I, it's funny um because like I, I can i can identify with tchaikovsky on this that he's like oh i hate this one like because it's the one he's the most well known for and <laughs> as any artist you want to be like yeah but i also did this other thing that's you know okay no one all right um for instance my i think my most viewed uh, song on YouTube is the one I'm kind of like the least proud of, but people <laughs> seem to like it for some reason. <laughs> and I kind of get it. Like all of these strung together, um, A, they're for a ballet. So uh-huh. while there is dancing in this, it doesn't, I, I don't know, for me, it never really translated as um, adapting a ballet suite to just random bits of nature dancing. I don't dislike this portion of Fantasia, but it is kind of the one where I sometimes just glaze over because it's just all right now the mushrooms are up all right i guess the fairies are done it's just it's it's in that weird space between story driven and abstract where you're just kind of like what 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 is what is going on yeah actually i do have a fun fact for um the nutcracker suite so this one's for the chinese dance um that there's a little mushroom uh and that little mushroom has a name it's hop low and <laughs> I kid you not. Oh no! And apparently, um, there's a, he does a little jump while crisscrossing his legs during the dance. And uh, uh, the animator uh, Art Babbitt actually got the idea while watching the Three Stooges because apparently Curly <laughs> does that move. Oh no! <laughs> um, that's that that's adorable. Yeah, I know. Hoplo is my favorite little mushroom. He's adorable. Uh, funny enough, the two pieces I actually do like from the Nutcracker Suite are in this. Uh, I actually do like the Russian and Waltz of the Flowers, but specifically, I like the part where the music swells, like with the Russian. It's like dun 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 dun. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. that, I like that. And then Waltz of the Flowers, uh, I like. I definitely like the ending, how it builds and builds and builds. It's just a very satisfying... Until we get the part with the snowflakes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just such a very satisfying climax. So, mm-hmm. um, I agree. It's not the strongest. It's really not the strongest uh, piece in this... Uh... In Fantasia? Yeah. But it's. I, I like the fact that it kind of separates the actual Nutcracker ballet from this music and tries to interpret it in a different way. That's uh, other, true. Other yes. than its intention. Yes. As an adaptation and interpretive piece, like did they get full marks from me on this of hey, Nutcracker Suite, nothing to do with Nutcrackers or Christmas, so like that's <laughs> impressive in and of its own. Oh yeah, you know, and this wouldn't this won't be the last time that Disney explores the music of Tchaikovsky, but uh, that oh, comes later. Yeah, that mm-hmm. comes later. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh yeah and this one i really like i i do like it um i it's interesting how we get sort of it's it's very it, the whole thing is very nature based you get fairies dealing with dew you have mushrooms uh flowers that dance uh both the russian dance and just one spinning on wind and or water um mm-hmm. can we can we please bring up the arabian dance i think this is the <laughs> oh and the and the and the, the, the fish with the bedroom eyes yeah this yep. is the first time i felt like an animated fish was trying to seduce me <laughs> <laughs> aren't the uh the kind of fish that have that detail though aren't the males the really flashy ones yeah so we're lo- yeah. watching a male fish try to seduce us I wonder about yeah. that. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. That fish is that fish is 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 keen to please. I think though, like I don't know if it's the type of fish I'm thinking about, but I think that's all. Like their sex organs are also their like fighting organs, so they'll like whip at each other with those long flails and tear them off of each other. Such a oh, weird animal. God. Oh my god! And yeah. here they are doing an Arab like a like an Arabian like sensual. Thing. I actually really like the mood of this one too because you're in a lot of dark parts of this underwater area and there's bubbles that change the transitions. By the way, the transitions in this is really good. Oh yeah, the, mm-hmm. I uh, there's there's some great transit. The way they transition scenes is really good. Like they're like with the dance of the reed uh, reed flutes. It's like the flowers are falling into the water, and then at the end you see the flowers like fall over the waterfall, and then you dive into the water. And then it transitions into uh, uh, the Arabian dance with the fish. I'm like, that's clever, God. <laughs> and then the, absolutely, the flowers are in the bubble that comes up from the fish at the end for the Russian dance. And then you smash cut basically from the re- the flowers having frozen to what you're easing through the trees for the waltz of the the waltz of the flowers. Mm-hmm. And then you still see the Russian flowers in the foreground, but now they're just part of the scenery. I'm like, oh, yes. that's actually really cool. I never really yep. picked up yes. on that before until I watched it yep. closely. Oh. Uh, um, and then, but it's funny, because like, we started with completely abstract, and then half abstract, half um, somewhat of a story, mm. and then we move on into old story-driven. There is n- no doubt this is... This is totally story driven. Yep. Oh yes. And <laughs> this is the this is the first time where I think in the original VHS that I had they uh, clipped the they clipped the segment down mm-hmm. because he basically describes what happens in the whole thing. Yeah, but uh, what we're talking about is they move on to the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and this is actually the one by Leopold Stokowski. St- so you're talking about the movie with Nicolas Cage, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> So, uh... Huh, he, huh, how to get burned. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, man. That Remember Fantasia? Remember that? <laughs> now it's got Nicolas Cage. Oh, <laughs> uh, why did that... That movie should have been more fun. It should it not have been. existed, as far um, as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. Um, but uh, this is actually the story came first. I think actually they and this like he bas- they basically knew what the story was. Leopold Stokowski then made music to evoke what the story would evoke, and then the animators. You mean this wasn't originally a uh, 
This was an originally a classical piece? This this was a completely original piece. Oh, that, for this. Yes, Sorcerer's Apprentice. This The music was specifically written for Fantasia. Oh, you could have fooled me. Yeah. 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 I actually, wow, I actually didn't know that. I thought, <laughs> that's actually, real, that's, that's even better. Mm-hmm. Wow. My respect for this just went up a bit, actually. So, uh, <laughs> The Sorcerer's Apprentice, um, I'll, I'll give a quick uh, synopsis, um, uh, is about Mickey Mouse, uh, basically playing the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and he's, uh, um, basically doing, um, uh, the typical janitor work, trying to pour water into, uh, this well, uh, while his master, um, I, 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 here's another fun fact, that master, uh, has a real name, his name is Yen Sid, which is Disney backwards, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but here's- I've here, never noticed that, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> gets better though, gets better. So, there's a reason why they called him Disney backwards, so the animators actually based this figure on Walt Disney, but- basically on his angry reactions so like the way that he like moves his eyebrows and gives a dirty look that's the same type of look that uh walt would give to the animators so (laughs) basically the animators just kind of were like hmm he's gonna be angry for most of this or so how are we gonna animate him let's animate him like our boss (laughs) well that makes so much thematic sense because this um I guess this just this movement in this story is all about um, upsetting your parental figure, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, Yen Sid is leaving for the night after um, doing some uh, uh, practicing with magic. Uh, goes to the bed, and then Mickey decides to take advantage, steals his hat, and create. Uh, um, uh, transforms the broom into a living figure so he could do his chore for him which is to pour uh to grab water and pour it into this well so while the broom did that uh, mickey goes off to daydream and uh uh wakes up and discovers oh no there's water completely flooding this area and uh tries to stop the problem by destroying the broom but instead makes tons of million, tiny little millions of brooms that keep doing this over and over to the point where now it's flood over flooded and Mickey doesn't know what to do. So Yunsei comes out looking angry, fixes everything. Mickey gives that apologetic look, gives him his hat back, and Yunsei's looking at him and says, Get back to work! And goes... <laughs> All- all of this without a single line of dialogue. Yep. Yep. Um, I guess this one, this one, I feel like deserves more of a breakdown because this is this is fun. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I noticed right off the bat is uh, how you can equate sorcery with conducting. Oh yeah. Because oh, yes. because everybody in everybody who performs magic, Yen said, Mickey, they're always doing these big hand flourishes, these big movements that seem like they're conducting the elements, and so. They're literally equating the conductor with the magician, which is, I think, a really neat, uh, which is maybe, uh, I think was the intention, but I mean, yeah, I oh, think so. yes, so <laughs> deliberate. Like when Yen Sid comes down and discovers all the flooding and he parts the waters and there's that symbol crash mm-hmm. every time he does it, like 
that's every compo- uh, conductor is different, of course, but that's a very obvious gesture that you would reach high above so the percussion in the back would see this cue and then strike the cymbals. Like, it's it's so apparent. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of, I mean, one of the even more obvious is when Mickey is daydreaming, he's daydreaming about basically controlling all the elements and is using his hands in a conductor mm-hmm. moment. Like, he's lifting his hands up in the way to, like, control the sea so it can swell up more and the music starts to swell. Or like when he wiggles his fingers and the stars come down from the sky as yeah. he does that. You get the twinkly instruments there. Yeah. It's just, oh... <laughs> that's that actually his daydream makes so much it, it, i like how it says a lot too about what he wants to do he's studying to be able to become a uh sorcerer so he can have power so he can actually do things but um he's i mean yen has got him doing all these like he's just i i literally don't know what the intention is just just keep hauling water until I tell you to stop. Oh, Is this like a Mr. Miyagi kind of thing? Well, think of that, but like, think of every, like any manile job or like, uh, Do, that. Does Yen Sid need that much water? He yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Clearly. Bring, go out to the well, get the water, bring it in. Mickey needs, uh, Mickey also is basically the intern for. Yeah, that's true. He's the, he's the, uh, assistant to um this sorcerer who also gets his dry cleaning <laughs> <laughs> um i kind of like the source of yen sid's well the thing is the source of yen sid's power really isn't the hat though because we see at the end he's able to do everything just by his own on his own he's just a great sorcerer on his on his own but mm-hmm. the hat uh definitely translates to mickey but it makes me wonder how much of, of it is the sorcerer and how much of it is the sorcerer's hat doing everything because mickey certainly doesn't know how to control it but yen sid is able to do all this crazy stuff even without the hat i always viewed the hat as just kind of an amplification device Mm -hmm. um and probably like makes your job easier maybe like you can expel less energy and effort maybe i don't know Gonna, um, I know this. We is, only ever see Yen Sid use the hat to like do, turn a, a, a an illusion of a bat into a butterfly, and then just go like bah and banish it back. I'm his skull bored. I'm bored. I actually, this is such a probably the worst way to equate it. I I think it's like taking a pill dry. You, some people can do it. I, can, <laughs> I, I like, like me. Is it fun? No. But if you drink water, it makes it easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what he needs all that water for, is his massive, massive amounts of pills. <laughs> all his magic comes from pills he takes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how that works. Mana pills. <laughs> um, there's a really great bit. So we get the broom. And of course, when the brooms, uh, when the first broom shows up, we get the main play motif of the piece. The one that everybody hums. The one that everybody knows. And it's great. Oh, the bump. I uh in high school on Halloween, my friends and I totally did this. Uh we had our friend dress up in a red robe with the Mickey Mouse uh, the sorcerer's hat, and the rest of us like went to Home Depot and tried to like get twine and uh wrap it around our legs and then wear all the same color brown shirts and have buckets. And oh. he conducted us, and we just walked around the school 
to that cadence. Oh <laughs> was, my god! That's some a, of the that, best moments of my life. That's great. I am. I, I'm. I'm proud of you retroactively. I, I am actually proud of <laughs> high school abysmy right now. And it's. It was like one of those magical moments because everybody, no matter what age you were, knew exactly what we were doing. <laughs> and like, no matter what like click you were in or like where you were, everyone was like, "Oh crap! It's Mickey Mouse." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. Also, did you, none of you guys didn't get uh, uh, chopped to pieces with an axe at any point. Did okay, you? I got to admit that has got to be one of the most incredible scenes to watch. Not only like is it just like horrific, like it feels like a horror movie, but it's being oh, yeah. done by Mickey Mouse. Like, damn. Well, if I remember correctly, this piece was included because Mickey Mouse was starting to, I think, uh, fall in popularity or relevance. And uh, I think Walt wanted that included to like kind of get it back in the public's eye. I could be wrong about that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, um, you know, over time, it's weird. Mickey has been around for ages, but for a while, he kind of lost his edge. You know, like he mm-hmm. went from being kind of a prankster and a little bit more of a selfish character to like the, you know, farm boy, boy next door. Oh, uh, boy. Oh, boy. And, uh. Um, so to see him be getting into mischief is always kind of nice. And it's, it's to see him uh, murder a broom with an axe is also surprisingly <laughs> cathartic. Um, and I love that bit, too, because like he right after he does it, everything goes black and white. Oh, yeah. What a, again, I yeah. love the use of color in this. It's like and the broom's coming up and then color comes back color comes back but then if like as the as they twitch there's a little bit of color in the whole scene and then they flop back down and they twitch again and there's more color and it's so good i know it's so good i just i just imagine mickey with you know his kids uh sitting around the fire and one of them says daddy daddy how come you don't allow brooms in the house (laughs) trust them they're all evil vacuums only That's why I keep an axe above the fireplace. Oh, God. What? Wait a minute. Is that a mop? Did you bring a mop in here? Destroy it. You get that shit out of here. <laughs> I'll, I'll bleep that later. I genuinely <laughs> love this piece. Like, I... I'm sure... I, I, it's definitely one of my favorites. I'm debating if I want to call it my favorite. Well, we still have a few more to go, but it is, it is one of the highlights of Fantasia. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, and of course you get that great bit at the end where, uh, at the very end where Mickey runs up to, uh, um, uh, Stokowski's port podium and shakes his hand. Oh my gosh. They're like congratulating each other. I'm like, oh, that's, that was touching. <laughs> and that's actually Walt Disney doing the voice of Mickey Mouse. I know. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Oh man. So then, um, we move on to, I, I don't want to say... Yes, it's technically but somewhat abstract and also a story. I think it, I don't think of it as like three levels. I think of it as more like five different levels. One that's incredibly abstract, abstract sort of story, completely half abstract, half story. More story, but still has that abstract feeling and completely story driven. I would say this is the next piece, which is uh, Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky is um Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> it's Igor Stravinsky. No, I just I'm just I'm just I'm just fun in here. No, I know, I know. I'm just fun in here. Um now that was a very interesting way to sort of 
key us into this. <laughs> this um, one is, is this the longest yes. one? Yes, in it the, is. Okay. Um, so, well, not, counting, we into- not counting the last piece, which kind of ties two together, like, seamlessly. I guess it is, yes. I, I love how Deems Taylor begins this. Oh, yeah, this was actually kind of fun. Because he didn't, mm-hmm. again, this he, is me seeing this for the first time in a lot of ways. Because he was saying, like, what scientists believe according to science about this i was like wow are are you really creationists don't get mad at us blame science well spoilers and trigger warning there be dinosaurs ahead (laughs) actually funny thing um here's another fact um early story treatments for the rite of spring uh actually it was more extended and would actually show the evolution of humans and the discovery of fire. However, creationists threatened to cause trouble for the film if this was included. So it had to be cut. I think that's uh. probably one of the reasons why it's like, well, science, science, please, creationists, do not. Like, you feel like he was really overemphasizing the science. He's no Bill Nye, I can say that much. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, typical. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, but, uh, another, another reason I think also why they made this is, um, it actually, they, it would have been of uh, great interest at this time, uh, because this was when, uh, the discovery of dinosaur bones and theories of evolution were starting to become more into view. Wait a Uh, minute. Hold on. Sorry. They're okay with a talking mouse that does magic, but dinosaurs... That's just that's that's not allowed. What about the rest of the freaking movie? I know, I know. <laughs> it doesn't make any uh, well, sense. Well, it's funny because it's like dinosaurs are fine. No, no, no. It's the fact they're gonna say man evolved. That creationists <laughs> were gonna have a fit about that. I guess they were willing to compromise about showing the whole billions upon billions of years creation of the Earth and everything, as long as it was they could say lean over to their kids and say, "Now listen, dear, it's just a fantasy. Remember, God made everything like five days ago." <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, so actually this piece too, um, the Rite of Spring, uh, was a very recent, um, piece right. too. Cause actually Igor, uh, Igor, wow. You could, this is how you can, this way. you could tell this is why I grew up with, uh, young Frankenstein. This is actually a weird fun fact about me. I've always called Igor, Igor, like all throughout my life. And I have to constantly stop myself because I actually watched, uh, young Frankenstein, as a kid, like okay. before any other Frankenstein movie or any idea of Igor. So I was interest- introduced to Igor. So Okay, okay. That explains a few things. It's so, cool, though. Yeah. I mean, that's a fun fact about Kayla. Fun facts about Kayla, the but podcast. Actually, so Stravinsky was alive, uh, and he actually visited uh, the Disney Studios, um, saw, like, all this sketches and artwork that would be made to uh set to his music and he actually was very impressed with it that's good so who wouldn't be i know this is okay it's very long i i I gotta admit i think it's a bit too long but in terms of what they do with it it's gorgeous and it's like it, it is powerful i love how it just feels so uh, what's the word? Like, this is when I think they take on the more, 
I don't want to say violent. Violent's not the word I'm... Uh... Cataclysmic. Yeah. Yeah, cataclysmic is a good one. Well, I mean, the scope of the scope of this... Uh, the scope of this one is huge, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, you're starting out in space... And you come into the Milky Way galaxy and you pass through nebulas and stars and you pass the sun. You come in and on the Earth and the Earth is just covered in active volcanoes. And there's a whole section of it where it's just volcanoes erupting to music. And it's amazing. I love that part. I love the brass accents whenever a, you know, blob of bubble just explodes. And then the upheaval when earthquakes happen and a tectonic plate shift. And there's just these massive mountains being born violently. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's this wonderful pairing of destruction and creation in this kind of yin and yang. And Kayla, you said it, you may not want to call it violent, but I think it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. It's violent. It's aggressive. Aggressive. That's the word I was thinking of. Aggressive. In both the formations of the young Earth and how the dinosaurs fight, it's absolutely savage. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so beautiful about it, is mm-hmm. that it's just like, well, yeah, this is just life, though. A lot of life is very ugly and mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, I, I love, I, but you, it, it's funny because this, this first part is savage. And you think about it, uh, Stravinsky wrote this initially as a, as a, Deems Taylor says, a series of tribal dances that was Rite of Spring as a ballet. Mm-hmm. And... It translates surprisingly well to this notion of the creation of Earth and the evolution of life on Earth. And uh, this part is like, you know, everything is dead and dormant, but there's still a very liveliness to everything at the same time. You're seeing a planet going through sort of its... uh, um, Growing pains. Growing pains, yeah. (laughs) You get, not only do you get these amazing volcanic eruptions, but you also get the whole scene where the the sea rises up and like swallows the mountains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the... The, the way they animate the lava, the way they animate the, the storms and the, the, the water is just impressive. I actually noticed this uh, fairly early on. I think they did some rotoscoping because when you see some of the smoke, it looks like old grainy. It almost looks like old grainy stock footage that has been rolled into it of yeah. just roiling smoke. And I think that's yeah. actually really cool. It actually works nicely in this piece. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we get then we get the uh, the deep sea. We get the uh, the beginning of life with the uh, single cell organisms splitting yeah. off, and and then you got these transitions where this cloud of mud just kind of obscures everything, and then you jump through a couple, you jump a couple epochs, and then you know <laughs> you've got jellyfish eating other jellyfish and dinosaurs. Oh yeah, we do. Well, yeah, we get right. We get to the dinosaurs pretty swiftly. Uh, I actually one of the. Our, I'm kind of glad we didn't get Prasicor on this. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, Our friend Prasicor, who is the uh, who he runs a podcast called The Raptors Nest, um, and he's a dinosaur. Uh, he's a he's a paleo expert. Yes. Um, uh, we'll actually bring him on uh, in a much later time for Dinosaur, which oh I think, boy. which I think would be fitting. Oh boy! I think he would give Fantasia a pass. This was 1940. And actually, it's been a while. Actually, a lot of people after Fantasia, like throughout time, started complaining like, well, this didn't happen with dinosaurs at that time. Well, this didn't happen. You got to realize, again, it's 1940. Not much discovery was made. Um, They were still in like the beginnings of their findings on things. Mm -hmm. So what they know was just what was revealed at the time. So, yeah, it's probably it's absolutely incorrect and how the dinosaurs may have died off or how they may have looked. But But again, you know, 
how many people, myself included, after this went, dinosaurs are the coolest thing ever. I'm oh, going to start yeah. learning about them. I mean, like, what the, an amazing introduction. Yeah. I mean, once you actually get them, this the the way they're they're animated beautifully. The I love. Uh, I think one one of the things that jumps out to me in particular about this one is the landscapes because I think because it's framed so much by landscapes at the beginning because that's all you have to work with. I'm hyper aware of them as we go into the rest of the movie, and there's some really fantastic scenes, set pieces in this particular one. Uh, I really love. It's very small, um, but there's this one part where th- there's just the camera panning through like a primordial rainforest and the way the multi the way it moves and the way the multi-pane camera is being used to make the scenery uh move Uh, for some reason that always resonated with me as a kid the idea of moving through this this tropical forest and it was like i i still love seeing it there's something magical about that uh one of my favorite parts and i think it was funny because you and i were like eating at the time and our dog Gracie was begging for food like she normally does. And there's this part where there's this uh, tiny dinosaur who's just going to everybody's like food, like a eating bowl. And then there's a point where the, uh, one of the dinosaurs looks up to see something and he steals food from there. I'm like, look, David is Gracie. (laughs) We started dubbing that little dinosaur trundles. (laughs) Cause he trundles around. I, I was always impressed by that little section because you have so many different things in different modes of movement at once, mm-hmm. and that is so much to keep track of. Oh yeah, it's, you know it's it's one or more dinosaurs, at least two dinosaurs, and excuse me, and how their food is moving in their mouths and like everything else, and it's just like I can keep going back and watching that and just trying to pick out individual little movements and flourishes in there. It's just so impressive. It is. I mean, if the camera was pointed like you could, it's like one of those things where the the world feels really alive, you know? Yeah. Like if the camera was pointed somewhere else, like Star Wars, if the camera was pointed somewhere else, you might see another interesting story going on. But unlike Star Wars, they'd have to bother to animate this. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we get the T Rex's introduction. Yeah. Oh yes. With the battle against a stegosaurus. That's that that um and it's T Rex. That T Rex got some gumption to take on a stegosaurus. He knew what he was doing though. I yep. mean kicked its ass. He kicked its Pretty ass. Pretty soundly. <laughs> I love the introduction to this battle of just everything abruptly stops and then you have these very heavy staccato dissonant pieces that are timed to the dinosaurs looking over like everyone looks over in the same exact direction with this snap of a neck and yeah. then just out of you know out of the ether this this t-rex busts onto the scene it's so powerful it gets more i love how the cuts get more and more manic as their mm-hmm. every dinosaur looks up and the music builds and then when you see it there's this like flash of lightning in the background right behind it and it's beautiful he's so it always scary. reminds me it, it like the T Rex always reminds me of the treatment they gave to the bear and the fox and the hound. It has, oh. it has it has the red eyes. It's this menacing figure, and just like every every part of its body looks like it can kill anything. Uh-huh. And it was just it, it's and it's weird though because like as a kid you would think you would be scared by that, but you're also absolutely captivated. And then yep. later, of course, we see the T-Rex, you know, dying in their death march off into the desert. Uh-huh. And you just have this complete change of heart of, aw, 
the vicious killer yeah. asshole is now dead. They really <laughs> so. Yeah, they really make a point of like showing how uh, everybody, everybody, all the dinosaurs are equal when it comes to mass extinction. So mm-hmm. it's, the, it's really the circle of life. Yep. The um, that part is uh, the the whole death march scene is really interesting because not only do you get the march, but you see like the opportunists come in because there's that part where all the dinosaurs are in like the the mud or the tar pit, and you yeah. got all the predators slowly creeping up on the sides, like ready to sort of pick off the ones that are left. And there's this part that always resonated with me where the one um, I'm so gonna butcher the name, the one long neck dinosaur, it's not a brontosaurus. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, not a brontosaurus. I can't remember the name, hun. Yeah, me neither. I can hear Prasicor yelling at me from the future. I know. Okay. <laughs> but it brings its long neck up and it like it looks up at the sky in like this agony and its head is framed against the sun and then it, like a dust cloud moves in and you feel like you you like this is it. This is the end. And I think that always stuck with me too. Mm-hmm. It's It's Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say this is <laughs> this is probably well because I'm looking through thinking of all the others but I think this is definitely the darkest piece like let's ignore what's we know like the scariest one coming up but even so in terms of like realism and how it's portrayed and the slowness of it um, you you see the agony you see the pain and it's beautiful but at the same time it's like you feel for them. Mm-hmm. You really feel Absolutely. for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of the audience would have been children. And when I was a child and yep. I watched this, it's one of your first introductions to mortality. And, yeah. And, and not sugarcoating it whatsoever, but doing an amazing job of giving just the bleakness of extinction and how the music at this part is a march tempo but the way that the horns and the strings are playing is very, it's almost, it's that famous song in um, the old Star Trek, but slower. So it's this kind of almost droning, harsh thing, like the winds that are attacking them, the uh, the sandstorm, mm. and perfectly executed. And it's weird because, like, I didn't freak out at that point. You know, I didn't say, like, oh, no, they're all dead. It was just like, okay, uh, I guess yeah, <laughs> that's, <all> <laughs> that, that's it. That's uh, it. I think toast. Like kids are smarter than you give them credit for. I've, I've yeah. always known this. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people need to give kids more credit. Because <laughs> I, I didn't cry at that part either. That, no, me neither. It never. I mean, I was. I think there was. Uh, it kind of bored me at certain points. <laughs> yeah, it is long. So it yeah. is long. very long. But it, it still was just kind of. I like the beginning parts. I knew bore me as a kid, but like the dinosaur parts kind of fascinated me, and I just watched and just was like oh okay i get it i love how at the end too there's like there's no there's no uh oh my god i almost unintentionally made a terrible pun but i'll go ahead and do it there's no bones about it (laughs) (laughs) they're all dead and they even make a specific point of showing the t-rex's skeleton with Mm -hmm. a little uh like i think it's like a little oboe trill yeah it's how the game over yep and then there's the crazy, the crazy earthquake like upheaval scene that comes right after that, where everything just gets buried again. Yep. Yeah. And uh, there's some great howling horns in that one. Yes. Rrr! French Rrr! horns. Yeah. Just which are the ugh. same horns that are used to make the Godzilla sound in soundtracks, oftentimes. 
Oh. Okay. Very powerful. And then we we leave on a very somber note with a solar eclipse and the planet just kind of rolling on into its existence. That's just it ends very quietly, kind of like how it started, even though everything in the middle was huge and loud and and aggressive. Yep. They should have just called this movement the right of existentialism. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But that's always the feeling I'm left with after this period ends. <laughs> Me too. Which is why it's good that we get this, uh, I think the next thing that falls is the intermission, so you have time to think about it. And then, yes. we, and then we come back, to, actually, when we do come back, they do this, you get to, uh, the musicians are having fun and do this little jazz break. I love that yep. part. That, it, that, it's like, that's adorable. Um, uh, but then it's followed by what, basically, we're going to introduce the soundtrack, which is like this line, and then... <laughs> They start to use each instrument and how that line interacts with inst- the instrument again. They're they're trying to lighten the mood again after uh, after Rite of Spring. <laughs> Makes uh, sense. And it, it's a callback to when we first started the. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like a it's like um it's like a Takata and Fugue light. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and then we actually do move in definitely into a much lighter, happier. Piece. Uh, uh, this one is the Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven. It yes. is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> um, and not in a like, oh, that's stupid and ridiculous, but just uh, it's it's comical. It it's is. Yeah. Very just, you know, there's danger, but no one's really in danger. Mm-hmm. And it's just this uh, scene of Olympus where, ha, 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 everyone's immortal. Oops, Zeus is pissed off. Actually, no, he's just having fun trying to throw thunderbolts at people. Yeah, it's funny because Zeus comes out and he's all ominous, but like, oh, man, we are jumping the gun so much. But we can be all over the place <laughs> on this, whatever. This this, it's, this is um, by far, I think, the most co- eye-popping like color oh, piece. Oh, God, like, yeah. This thing thrives on bright colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, just to make everybody clear so the storyline of this um is uh, do it in a deems taylor voice like i can do that sure <laughs> the story the symphony that you now go ahead uh so this takes place on mount olympus um and basically we're um brought through all the different characters uh or di- basically different creatures to be honest like we yeah see the uh pegasus interacting the little I think they're unicorns. There's yeah. u- my little unicorns. Oh, and my little pegasi. Actually, actually it's not too far off because you know those unicorn and pegasi. Yeah, they they actually did influence My Little Pony. It the- does not surprise me in the slightest. They're wow. bright colors. They're small. They're adorable. Mm-hmm. Some of them have big eyelashes, especially the the little the little black pegasus. Yeah, the little black pegasus is adorable. So, and then we move to um, the centaurs, and then we see the cent. It's like mating season, so all the centaurs <laughs> are getting ready to meet each other and fall in love. And then this is followed by. There's also cherubs and satyrs. Cherubs and satyrs are dancing about, um, but they're basically also preparing for the back bacchanal, which this is probably bacchanal light, because if it was a real bacchanal. There'd be, There'd be more orgies. Oh, yeah. but Everyone um, would be doing it. Everybody. <laughs> exactly. So Bacchus comes out. They're celebrating. Bacchus comes out with uh, on a donkey, drunk off his ass. And they're all... I, lo- I love that Bacchus has already pre-gamed too hard before his yeah. own <laughs> festival. Yep. And then... Uh, What's the name of the game? 
<laughs> so, oh. uh, so as uh, as they're celebrating, clouds start to come in, and then Zeus appears. Is like, I'm gonna have fun, guys, by throwing lightning and causing a storm. I'm, let's do this. So Heph- Hephaestus is there too, and he's having a good time. Like, <laughs> so, uh, well, so all the little ponies and centaurs are running trying to find shelter Bacchus is trying to run away in his drunk state and uh and it just wants to they both they all get through the storm and then Zeus is like yeah I'm done I'll go to bed now and then everything's happy again (laughs) and then everything's happy again a rainbow comes out the sun uh rises and uh uh, they all dance and are happy again, and it's it, it's a, it's a, again it is ridiculous because it's like there's really no there's no consequences not really yeah Aurora shows up and you know everyone just starts it again apparently mm-hmm. apparently so um uh I'm already I'm already kind of shocked that um this is the podcast we're going to be talking about centaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there is a, uh, controversial, uh, th- this one. It's a deep cut for anybody who listens to some mm. of the other podcasts we do. Yeah. Um. But, uh, no, 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 this one's a, there actually is a controversy, controversy in this piece. Oh boy. That was, it was yeah. cut out. It was cut out. Um, so in the original Fantasia, there was a character named Sunflower. She is, uh... A small centaur that looks like a. I'm I'm trying to word this extremely nicely. Um, racist black stereotype. It really that's, is. That's it. She is a racist black stereotype, and I mean really racist black stereotype. Um, I like uh with it. I mean her face is more ridiculous, and um uh it. She has like the super nappy hair. Yeah, and then Big not only lips, bulging eyes. Yeah, exactly. And then not only that, she's not uh, one of the pretty centaurs getting ready. She's helping the pretty centaurs get ready by like filing their nails. Yeah, or hooves, doing whatever. their hair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was. It was definitely it's. They actually it was redone. And you won't see her anymore. But um, apparently, she has become a popular figure among hardcore Disney fans. Really? Yeah. Weird. But yeah, I know. So that actually, I'm glad it was taken out because I'm sorry. That's that's racist. It, it, I don't like. I don't. Most of the time, I don't begrudge people leaving in racist parts of older media because that's just part of it and you don't want to ignore yeah. history you want yeah. to be able to point it out confront it like with lovecraft like you, you know it happens you're just reading an oh, racial slang and you you acknowledge it and you move on mm-hmm. but thankfully excluding that part from from fantasia takes nothing away at nothing. all no it so it, it doesn't yeah. influence it at all it doesn't yeah. do anything to be honest no no, yeah, it contributes it's... nothing to the overall overall piece. So I mean, yeah. why why even bother? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm, and, I'm and if you want, it. and if you want, like you know, like uh, black centaurs. I mean, there's the Dionysus or not Dionysus. Bacchus's entourage is two zebras, two oh, zebra yeah. centaurs, and they're they're 
portrayed as the the upper the human part are are like black women. Yeah. And yeah. but they have zebra bodies. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. I always thought they was, those were the coolest centaurs because yeah. I'm like oh she, oh my god they're zebras so cool. I well, they're like the honor guard, which is like really cool. Yeah. yeah. I gotta admit, though, even I like exotic, like more exotic animals as centaurs. So, like, uh, we were joking when there's the part where the centaurs are coming down. That's late. The lady centaurs are coming down, and they're you know like showing off to the boys. And I'd like, do you think any of these are dressage centaurs? <laughs> They'd have to do really high steps if you were a dressage centaur. <laughs> I, 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 think, find it, I think dressage is foreplay for all of them. Yes, um, <laughs> I find it funny. It's like, oh my gosh, luckily there's a centaur that looks just like me, and it's like he was made for me. Oh yeah, there's no uh, there's no cross pairings. All the color, the centaurs all find the centaur of their appropriate color. Yeah. And, Which and is weird, gen. because the pegasi, there's a white and a black one, so... Yeah. Which one... What? Which one is supposed to be the OG Pegasus? You know, the one that came out of Medusa's blood? <laughs> is it the black Pegasus or the white Pegasus? Mine is on the black Pegasus, who's like, I, who's definitely got a more commanding presence. Dude, That's that Pegasus is badass. Yeah. That is a pretty badass Pegasus. Oh, man. You gotta hand it to uh, to the white Pegasus, though. Like, that Pegasus is taking good care of the family. Oh, yeah. Black <laughs> Pegasus, you don't see doing that much. Black Pegasus is just floating around on the side, being stoic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, But, yeah, um, I mean, this this has story beats to it, but otherwise, it's just kind of, again, it's just, it's it's... Like the pastoral it's based off of. It's more it's more thematic and scenic. Yeah. It's a snapshot of, you know, Greek and Greco Roman mythology. Uh, yeah. one could call it, I don't know, like kind of keyhole fiction, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it does it fit it, it I mean, it could be considered keyhole fiction. You're kinda of just looking in on a what's basically a Day in the Life. Well, not even day in the life. It's like, oh, we got an event going on. This is a holiday. A so. low-key Bacchanal, as opposed to the more <laughs> hardcore Bacchanals. Yeah. I think because it was Children's Day, because they had all, like, the baby the baby Pegasi and the baby unicorns are all there. Yeah. And so they didn't want to, you know, like... Although uh, Uncle Bacchus is there, and he's already getting drunk <laughs> with his donkey. Okay, look, we could drink, but no orgies, okay? <laughs> I don't like, like the way you're walking. You've been into the wine again, you pushnigget. <laughs> Bacchus is great. Nothing gets him down. He gets a little spooked sometimes, but you never you never see him sad, like I, ever. Well, there's yeah. a point where Bacchus is chasing after uh, the female centaurs, and then he's trying. He's about to kiss one of them, and turns out kisses the donkey, and is still just happy. <laughs> it's like, oh, ah, you. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's a drunk person, all right. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> and then the funny part is, like, there's a storm going on. I don't they like fall into this like, like thing of wine, and then they're just like, yep. "Hooray!" <laughs> hey, oh, right, we were drinking. <laughs> right. And Zeus, I get even when Zeus is throwing lightning, he's just like, "Oh, I'm gonna get him good." <laughs> yeah. I'm like, isn't this like his brother? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean one of his sons, I think. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the big three are brothers. You got you got um Poseidon, Zeus. Hades, and Zeus, yeah. 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 And then yeah, Bacchus is one of his sons. <laughs> I'm gonna mess with you, you you little scamp. Yeah. But Dad, I'm your son, huh? Well, I got a thousand of those. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
I like I actually like the bit at the end where like at the end of the storm scene where Hephaestus like decides he wants to throw one on his own. He's just like, Ugh. and he throws it and it explodes. But he puts a hand on his mouth like, ooh, ooh. Oops. <laughs> I like. I bet Zeus was like throwing, but he was aiming to miss. I bet in that scene, uh, Hephaestus threw one and like torched a family of satyrs on accident. He's just like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Don't pan to that. Yeah. I will say there's, there's for some reason, like, I, there, it gets really, it's what's great about this, as ridiculous as it is, it does get nice and uplifting at the end of it, you know? Yeah. It is. Like, yeah. once the storm clears and everyone starts being like, yeah, the crisis averted, and and the pastoral kick picks it up again, and the revelry returns, there's one scene that always, I don't know are, why. Are you, are, you, are you talking about when, uh, with the rainbow, and, uh, the black pegasus, uh, that little black baby pegasus, uh, pegasus is uh, playing with the cupid baby, and they're flying through different colors. Yeah, that part's gorgeous. Mm. I know it. It's like you could tell the animators were having fun with that scene, and it's like while they're going through each color, they're uh, like the cupid's hair changes with the color. Yeah, and it's just like it's. You could tell if this wasn't if this wasn't an, this whole thing was an analogy about color before. It certainly is now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which probably explains the racist stereotype that show it. Yeah, it's all about <laughs> color. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I will say, right after that part, there's this one moment where the uh, the camera pans up, and there you see one lone satyr playing its pipes, and you see sort of the background. For some reason, the for some reason, I don't know what it is about this moment, but it's that moment is lodged in my uh, the the leitmotif of the piece is playing there too, like da 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 da. But it's just done by the flute. Yeah. And for some reason, the the visual of that coupled with the music always gives me this weird, like emotional uplifting feeling. And I, I've had that ever since I was a kid. So coming back to it was like hit me in the nostalgia super hard, and I almost teared up a little bit. And there's nothing else hit me to the same level. Although I was like giddy all the way through watching Fantasia, but that moment for some reason caught me right in the feels. I don't know what it is about it. Isn't that weird? Well, like I was saying, how you experience music is the second part to how the music is made. Yeah, I mean it's like a reprisal. I think that's part of it. It's like sort of coming full circle, and it's 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 great. Yeah. <sighs> um. What's what? Are, I think we've said all that needs to be said about. Uh, the about Mount Olympus. Uh, the next part it, uh, piece is uh, "Dance of the Hours" uh, by um, Poncielli. Yes. Oh, great! I said it right. And this <laughs> one, or as uh, many people remember, it's the ostrich ballet. Um, which is or, weird because I always remembered it as the hippo and alligators. Yeah, I think. No, no one ever shows any love to those poor elephants, though. No. Um, they don't yeah. get shown in the media all the time when. Disney talks about like revives anything from Fantasia. But yeah, this is I I think this one it's cute. I don't think it's the strongest. It's fun. It's fun, yeah. Uh I think it this was just I think it, this was more This is about, this is okay, so th- we talked about how the last piece was ridiculous, but in a meaningful way, right? This is mm-hmm. just This ridiculous. is the most cartoony. I think you know what I think they did? They they thought um, and they they thought, okay, we know ballet plays a good, uh, uh, important role usually with classical music. Let's animate the most ridiculous animals you can imagine doing ballet. And <laughs> actually, they did. Um, they so Walt Disney did hire um, dancers 
as live action models uh, for uh, the animators to study. And they actually got some very uh, well-known ones, like Sid Charisse was one of them, Mark Platt, um, uh, Malata um, Maldova, like, just a, like, they- A plethora. A plethora mm. of, uh, of uh, dancers to study, so a lot of those moves they're doing is are actual dances. Um, and I, it's just made more ridiculous with the fact that there's a hippo- um, and actually, by the way, those characters do have names. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, the hippo, uh, the dancing hippo is, uh, named Hyacinth. <laughs> uh, the main ostrich is Mademoiselle Opanova. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, the alligator is named Ben Ollie Gator. I don't get that reference. <laughs> ben Ollie. Um, ben Ollie. Gator. Yeah. Well, oh. no, it is it is Ben Alligator, but it's a play on Benali. Oh. Oh, okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Well, uh, it, I with Upanova, I think uh, one of the uh, uh, dancers <laughs> that they did. Um, up and over. <laughs> up and oh, 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 God. Well, because here's the funny. She jumps up and over everybody. Yep. All. Well, here's yep. the here's the thing. Like uh, a couple of the dancers they did um, study. One was named Alexandra Danilova. Another was Irina Baranova. That's probably why they came up with Mademoiselle Upanova. <laughs> That's funny. The exact opposite of Hop Low. <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's just cartoony and fun. There's I don't think there's much to say about it. Um, Not really. This one, um, I feel bad because this is the one. If I had to skip, I would because. <laughs> To this day, the music is fine. I quite mm-hmm. everyone knows "Dance of the Hours," even if they don't know the title. But like, it's just it doesn't stick in my mind. I don't associate that song with Fantasia, unlike the rest of these, because it is just very—I don't want to say shallow, but it is kind of just without. It feels like there wasn't a point, and they're uh-huh. just like, "Eh, they throw some animals dancing. Who cares?" <laughs> I, th- I think again. I think the purpose was not more for the music. But rather, let's let's have fun animating a bunch of uh, ridiculous animals doing ballet. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's still it's still fun, but it's easily the the cartoony piece of the, and that's not that's not a bad thing. But I'm kind of with you. Uh, if I it, it, it's not, hmm, it's still enjoyable. It's still enjoyable. That's the main thing. Oh sure, it's still fun. But there's just not. It's not like here we are coming off of. Um, pastoral and then before that existential crises the uh <laughs> i mean okay but i mostly want to skip past this one because we're moving on to uh i think surprising no one my favorite piece of fantasia Same. i think yeah <laughs> i think this is, this is i think this piece ties or it's it's definitely neck on and neck and neck for me with sorcerer's apprentice i think this one may be a bit higher but yeah it's it, this is the one I think everybody remembers. It's a night on Bald Mountain by um, Modis Morsigorsky. Morsigorsky. Okay. Oh, sorry, Musorsky. Musorsky. And yep, this is the one with the devil summoning <laughs> all of his uh, demons and ghosts and just having an evil good time. Now, oh man. In- interestingly, 
Uh, most of the popular media refers to him not as the devil, but as Chernabog. Yes. yes. But let's be honest, it's the devil. It could it's, easily be both. It's another name for the devil, you know, yeah. any well, Chern- major well, Chern- demon. Well, Chernabog was originally a, sl- a darker uh, Slavic god. Yeah, and this does, and uh, Mazarski was, of course, um, I believe he was a Slav for... Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, 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 according to, again, this was missing from the VHS I had when I was a kid. So it was interesting. He describes that, uh, uh, he describes that this is before the piece. This is set on Walpurgis Nacht. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he equates it to our Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but I, I know what Walpurgis Night is. So this is actually really cool that now I have some even more context for this piece. I, one of the reason why I love this piece, uh, is the design of all the ghosts, demons, just, mmm. I could just it, it watch. It really is a, like, menagerie of just every animator come up with the most messed up thing you can think of and throw it together in a just demonic cavalcade. Oh. Um, so, fun fact, even, it's been like 60 years Disney still receives complaints from parents about this movie. <laughs> they will say, your movie scared my kid. Oh, that is, that's beautiful because for me, this piece is like, if I had to psychoanalyze myself, this is the most influential piece of animation and music that I've ever seen. Oh, from, no doubt. from this piece was born my love of just dark music, dark animation, and just music and animation in general. And after seeing that, like, I just had music in my head, and I wanted to express it. Because oh. everything about this is just so expressive. The way that we sweep through the town when you have the very light but dissonant strings that are making this rising tension, and it's like fingers crawling up your back and then we ascend the mountain to the peak and then Chernabog comes out and it's in very deliberate imposing motions and then everything just descends from his fingertips it's just so powerful like how can you not love it the way his shadow creeps over everything and it's a literal just just like curling darkness that wherever his shadow touches like I love the moment where it goes over the the hangman's noose and ghosts come floating through the noose and up into mm-hmm. the sky. Yeah. And that's when you just know you're in for a good time. Or, I, there's the part where, like, his hand rises and then, like, uh, there's a fire in it and the fire turns into figures and you're just like, oh, man, that is... Uh, it's in tune with the music, too. It's yeah, so- oh, it so perfectly matches the music. Um they chose a beautiful... I mean, this is one that had a definite story that they just decided to work with. You know, the, mm-hmm. the Night on Bald Mountain was specifically about this sort of thing. And um, and they capture it so well. I I absolutely adore the uh, the way the ghosts are animated in this, particularly when they when they're first ascending the mountain and they there's there, there's almost they look sketchy, almost chalky, but they move so fluidly and it's there's some of them are really genuinely horrifying looking. You've yeah. got like like uh, horsemen, uh, you know, skeletal horsemen with lancers on on uh, bony steeds. You've got cloaked figures where there's nothing in the cloak but a glowing pair of orbs and. It's just, it's so great. <laughs> By the way, I got a fun, yes. here's another fun fact. Um, 
Bela Lugosi was actually going to serve... Well, he did. He served as a live-action model for Chernabog. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, hold on, hold on. He did... He spent several days at Disney Studios. He did a lot of demon-like poses. However, the animator for Chernabog didn't like it. They said there's something off about this. So he, they brought in their uh, sequence director to do poses for the camera. And his name was Wilfred Jackson. And it's actually Jackson, not Lugosi, who's appearance uh, is in camera because if i mean look at chernabog that does not look like lugosi come no, on <laughs> no i but, mean he's too buff to be lugosi <laughs> yeah so no uh lugosi but he was brought in as a consideration to be a model mm-hmm. for chernabog interesting mm-hmm. so he, he actually was paid and actually did some uh did some uh <laughs> uh Poses. And- Sounds very Ed Wood, like, you know, hey, just go stand in this cemetery and make Dracula poses, you know? <laughs> hey, come sit in the studio and make demon poses because you're Bella Lugosi. <laughs> All right, let's shoot this f- <laughs> oh, One of my favorite parts of this entire scene is the way fire and light is paired. Yeah. Because, um, A, the fire changes colors from regular yellow to deep blue to, like, green and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And all the creatures dancing in it, they also change color with how light would be cast. But it's, like, it's it's given a natural treatment and logic, uh-huh. but how it actually appears is just otherworldly and wrong because colors are just shifting in unnatural ways to kind of emphasize how these things are not of this earth or, you know, from some demonic realm underneath mm-hmm. and it's just like it's it's as colorful as the other pieces but in a completely different way and there's all this use of darkness as the kind of base negative space that things are born out of the same thing was done in the um, batman animated series yeah started with a black canvas and then built things out of it and mm-hmm. it has so much character and texture to it mm-hmm. it's it's uh I could go on and on about this one. I know. It's so good. Um, The ending, like right before, right before Chernobog sort of like pulls everything back into himself. There's that moment where the screen is just chaotic with like smoke, fire, spirits, demons, harpies, just everything is flying in and around the camera in your face. Just like the scene uh, is just, is a complete, is a complete um, pandemonium. Mm hmm. Like, you yes. can actually use pandemonium, pandemonium in its appropriate context here. Absolutely. And I love it. It's the great way to, like, right before Chernabog does that thing where he brings his arms up and that light shines up from below him and just, like, frames him perfectly. And then and then the church bells ring. Yep. <laughs> and then everything. And everything gets sad. <laughs> For me. It's weird because it is, yeah, it's just, and back in the day when I was watching this, um, that uh, that part always like, oh, we were having so much fun. Yeah. But um, as an adult now, when I'm watching it, it's just, it's very interesting to see and to feel this coming down period. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, it feels natural. And there is a very obvious thematic pairing here of Demons and then Ave Maria by Schubert. Mm-hmm. Um that just kind of you know just everything settles and everything it resolves in this very slow decrescendo um mm-hmm. and even like even the animation too of course is paired with the music so it's becoming less and less detailed and it's almost getting fuzzy and things kind of just dissipate and it's beautiful um, i love it actually <laughs> uh the final ave maria sequence another fun fact 
it's um this was actually the toughest scene to do for them and actually had a lot of mishaps so what they did was uh where it's because it seems like it's moving through a scene uh several panes of painted glass were used and it was actually over 200 feet long and they had to do this three different times and one of them was like the wrong lens was in place the second time there was an earthquake and then the shot had to be scrapped and then um third time's the charm yep third time's the charm they ship it off uh, to get it processed and uh they had only they were able to get it done to final print with only four hours to spare I know that Walt originally ha- conceived, I don't know how far this got, but there was somewhere talk in the planning phases at the at the end. So, I mean, the way this happens is coming down from Bald Mountain is um, you have these, what I presume are monks or villagers or people in robes. When I was a kid, I couldn't really tell what they were. They just looked like weird, vague shadows with glowing balls for heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I understand what they were supposed to be. But then you have the actual Ave Maria, like, chorus come in and the camera seems to move down this dark corridor probably through trees toward a light you come out of the trees and then there's a dawn that breaks with over some hills with some clouds as the music um reaches its conclusion and uh originally uh walt had conceived that at the very end you were supposed to see an image of the madonna in the sky um Mm, yeah and yeah that doesn't really come through no no i mean but that was how it was supposed to be conceived like instead it's just a dawn and i think that's a lot more i think it's more subtle i think going more subtle is better yeah but that was something that that was an idea that was tossed around was to see mary i kind of like the dawn better because it's just it's just such a peaceful uh secular ending (laughs) and not only that it does like with the dawn it's sound it's a bit more hopeful and Mm -hmm. it's just like it's, it's definitely a perfect note to end on for this. I appreciate the Ave Maria portion of this so much more now than I did when I was younger. Usually yeah. when I was a kid, I'd get to the end of Bald Mountain and I would stop the tape. <laughs> same, I, same. I found this whole part absurdly boring. Because not much happens. No. But now I can kind of take it in and be like, yeah, there's still something happening here. It's uh, I can appreciate the um, the sacred in contrast with the profane that came before, you know? I, I yeah. think it, 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 it's just like a moment of quiet just to soak in everything we've just experienced. Right. It, it kind of feels like that's where the credits would be if there was a credit roll. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's the, the movie's over. Everyone calm down and collect your thoughts, you know, uh, go find your car. And, <laughs> but like, because this is not a traditional movie, of course, you know, what do you put in there? Okay, well, let's have this kind of, you know, fade from the, um, you know, the demonic detail into this kind of just sacred, soft abstraction. You know, again, it just, it makes sense now that I'm an adult. It really does, the pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, Fantasia comes to a close. Mm-hmm. I the one thing about that's great about Fantasia is this is probably one of the riskiest movie moves that um, in terms of animation that anyone had ever done at this time, and it still I think would is it, still a risky uh, movie 
in terms of animation. I mean, as I mean, as we as we go further down the line in terms of just animation in general later in life, yes, there's a lot more um, surreal films and all that, but they came at times where it wasn't as much of a risk as this one was mm-hmm. yeah. for its time. Well, interestingly enough, um, I know that Walt had originally thought this might be a semi-regular feature. Like, every so often, we will revisit the concept of Fantasia and have more animation paired with classical music. Um, that didn't end up happening, mostly because I think Fantasia was a flop initially. Yeah, it was considered their biggest, one of their biggest uh, box office flops. And so we wouldn't get another Fantasia until uh, decades later. Oh, yeah. and uh, I, Actually, exactly 60 years later. That, you're right. Because mm-hmm. uh, Fantasia 2000 did come out in 2000. We, uh, and Fantasia 2000 will, we will eventually talk about, uh, but that's going to be a ways away. We have so many yeah. more <laughs> decades of animation, animated features to get through. But um, do we have any, I guess now that we've reached the end here, do we have any closing thoughts about Fantasia? Uh, a bismi fun fact: I've never seen Fantasia 2000. Really? Really? I've ne- I just, I wasn't, I wasn't excited about it when it came when it, you know when it was first introduced, and I was like, eh, why, and why? Because <laughs> I, I looked at the trailers and just, I was like, yeah, that's cool, but Fantasia is a lightning in the bottle. Yeah. What what was done cannot be replicated. And I'm not saying people shouldn't try, but it's just such, like I said in the beginning of this, weird. It's so <laughs> strange and unique, and you like nothing's been tried like it since because I don't even think it would work today. You can't go to a modern movie-going audience and say, hey, there's this cool anthology coming out. What's in it? Bunch of weird stuff that you've probably never heard of. It, it, people just won't take a risk on it. No. And, I don't know, uh, so just to recap my thoughts, um, just to reiterate, really, uh, yeah, this, this anthology has a insurmountable effect on me to this day, and I have no problem rewatching it all the way through. Um, I think that it's influenced so many people in our generation who grew up with it to yes. even care about classical music, to, you know, to care about... 2D animation, which uh, isn't dying, but it's certainly not in the spotlight anymore. No. Um, as far as animated features go, uh, it's just this wonderful time capsule of incredible passion and skill, and um, you know, just things like that should be cherished for how influential they are. I completely agree. Um, Fantasia is, is special and unique, and. Um, still like revisiting it years later uh it still holds up so well for oh, me. and i yeah. say i say that about all i've said that about snow white and i've said that about pinocchio and i think i was maybe a little more surprised with those but fantasia is almost just as special as i remember it being you know agreed it it was ahead of its time for its time and it's still i i mean it, it's just still an amazing piece to watch is is it one of those films that you could watch every single day. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. It, but when you watch it, you know this is this is art. Like this is the. I would say this is like the definition of animation as an art piece. As an art form, yeah. As an art form. 
I completely agree. Um, man, I couldn't have picked a couple, uh, a pair of better people to talk about. Vintage <laughs> work, I gotta say. So, uh, uh, Abysme, thank you for joining us for this one. Well, thank you for having me on. It was uh, really wonderful to revisit Fantasia. Um, I always, I'm always happy to revisit Fantasia. And hey, um, when we do get around to Fantasia 2000, uh, you're invited to come back and check it out with <laughs> us. It might be interesting to see what you think of it. Because uh, I saw, I did see Fantasia 2000 when it came out in theaters. Same here. Actually, um, my uh, my school took us to uh, Fantasia 2000 when it was being played at, um, I can't remember which theater it was, but it was like a really big one. And we watched it like on the IMAX screen. Oh, that wow. Was, that was actually no. a field trip of ours. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I will. I'll finally watch Fantasia 2000 for that episode then. <laughs> All right, then. Well, then uh, in, in the future, uh, you are completely welcome to come back and join us for that. But. Until then, uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find uh, my music on YouTube uh, slash Abysme. I'm also on SoundCloud and Bandcamp, at, uh, also under Abysme. I host a podcast called Raygun Readers, which is a sci-fi literature podcast, as well as a fun podcast called Raw Dog Readings, which is a horror literature podcast. But um, yeah, as far as music, you can pretty much find me. Um, just type in Abysme online, A-B-Y-S-M-I-I, and I will pop up. Excellent. Well, um, our next film that we're going to address is uh, Dumbo. Um, that'll be an interesting one. But not only that, um, we're going to do our first, uh, s- uh, I guess, side movie. Side movie? Wait, what? <laughs> we're going to do a side... Wait a minute. Hmm. Okay, I guess we can do it. All right. All right. So I guess we're going to be looking at, uh, shall I reveal it? Might as well. Uh, We're actually going to be looking at some uh, side animated films that um, they were not, uh, they were produced by Walt Disney Animation Studios, but it wasn't directly underneath it. And they were all, these were all, these will all be theatrical releases. Um, And we're going to address them because I feel like they were, an important part of Disney animated history. So we will be addressing the reluctant dragon. Hmm. Okay then. So stay tuned. We might not spend as much time on the reluctant dragon or any of the side ones as we might on the major ones, but we'll see how it goes. That is completely up for interpretation. Yeah. But until the next feature, uh, do we still have a, do we even have a proper sign off for this podcast yet? I I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, we don't, there was no villain plummet in this one. Ah, uh, no plummet counter still. That uh, We'll see if that comes up in Dumbo. <laughs> or the Reluctant Dragon. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, you guys, this is uh, David, Kayla, and uh, Abysme signing off. Bye. Bye. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.